0: Uh, So today we continue in this uh, talk about uh, Jonah and where it's going, and uh, before we get to that, just want to reiterate, if you want to go deeper with any of what we've talked about, this is a very complex story, as you've heard. This is no child's tale. Uh, There's a lot going on, and it goes deeper and deeper, and today we'll take it a notch deeper. Uh, Today may have the capacity to Unsettle you more <laughs> than the rest, so we'll see how you all ride with that. Won't be terribly new information for those of you who've been around Crosswalk for a while, but it could mess with you some in some ways, which I'm hopeful for. So if you want to come, uh, chew that up Tuesday at loon and Tuesday at 7 p.m. So I'll throw out an email on that as well, so you know about that. And then just a quick word about what's coming up. And uh, next week uh, we are doing our own kind of Crosswalk Moth event. Now you may not be familiar with Moth. Uh, it uh, is featured on NPR. It's this nationwide thing where these events show up in different locales, and uh, they have a theme, and people come prepared to tell a story. They put their name in a hat, and hopefully their name will get picked up. Only a dozen or so are going to share. They get judged and all that, and it's, a, it's an amazing experience. I had my first experience in San Francisco a couple months ago, and as soon as it happened, I was like, oh, we got to try this. So next week, uh, we're trying our own moth event, and it will be an interesting day on this theme of unexpected. So if you have a story uh, that you think would be interesting, less than five minutes, you can go up to five minutes, uh, we'd love to hear it. Uh, So be thinking about that and sharing that next week. Uh, We'll do some group stuff to have you guys share a little bit around the tables too, nothing too invasive, but just to kind of get in this theme, because the story of Jonah, the whole thing is unexpected. Uh, when the people were sitting around the town center and one of the prophets comes up to tell this tale of Jonah, the story was completely unexpected. Uh, right out of the gate, uh, Jonah is told uh, you know, to go to Nineveh. And what does he do? Goes the other direction. Supposed to go to Iraq. He chooses to go to Spain instead. <laughs> right away, the crowd knows we're in for a tale. Uh, he He falls asleep in the middle of a stormy sea. Uh, He's snoring in the hold. Everybody else is freaking out. They're throwing all the cargo overboard, praying to their gods. And what is Jonah doing? He's asleep because he knows what's going on. He doesn't care. Finally, he's awakened. What happens? Finally, reluctantly, the sailors throw him off the boat, pleading to God for forgiveness for doing so. They're more faithful than Jonah, the alleged prophet, is. And he's thrown into the sea. And all the townspeople are listening to this story and they're thinking, well, that's the end of that story. But no, all of a sudden, God causes this huge fish to come up and swallow Jonah whole. And somehow... He survives all the bacterial acid and juice and utter darkness and lack of oxygen for three whole nights and crafts this beautiful poem of a psalm to God about how faithful God is to rescue him when he absolutely didn't deserve it. Can you just see the looks on faces now amid the audience? None of these people are taking this as a literal true story. They're all like, okay. We're onto this thing. Uh, this is a this is a guy who's kind of an idiot, and he's going against God, and God is being gracious anyway. And so God hears this beautiful poem, which is a really a Thanksgiving psalm to God, and causes the fish now to vomit, but not just to vomit anywhere in the sea as fish are prone to do, I guess, but rather to go up a huge fish to go up close enough to shore and to get enough of a kind of a thing <laughs> to cast this Jonah up on the seashore back perhaps near ancient Joppa. So now the whole community is just kind of laughing along. It's almost stand up at this point. Uh, He hears the call again and Jonah finally heeds it. He goes to Nineveh and everybody's thinking all right this guy has several days maybe weeks journey to get to Nineveh from Joppa He's going to be polished in this sermon. He knows he's not going to screw this up. No, he gets there. He gives the worst sermon ever and goes up on a hill to see what's going to happen. He is hoping that the Ninevites get absolutely destroyed. But that's not what happens. The people of Nineveh are more faithful <laughs> to this foreign god than Jonah knows how to be. And it's frustrating, Jonah, to watch the king of Nineveh command everybody Uh, to wear sackcloth and put on ashes on their face to show their mourning to God. And even goes further, if you've been following along, to put their animals in sackcloth and ashes as well. This is an absolutely ridiculous scene, right? And so uh, God spares them. His word was, God's word was, I'm going to destroy you people very soon. And then? God changes God's mind. And Jonah is none too happy about it. God tries to give him one last little uh, illustration to help get through to Jonah. He creates this this large, maybe it's a mustard plant, we're not quite sure, but a large plant to cover him so he has shade in this hot, this Iraq heat. And Jonah is so grateful for this shade bush now. And then overnight... This worm comes and starts to eat the thing. The sun comes out, burns the whole thing. And Jonah is indignant that he lost his shade. And that's when God brings it home. He says, what are you doing, man? I'm trying to show these people mercy. I'm showing them grace. And all you can think about is this ridiculous plant. What is wrong with you? <laughs> and the story ends. And the people in the town uh, hear that. This completely unexpected tale. And whoever is telling the tale is not the prophet. Nobody wants to lay claim to this work. It's an anonymous work because they know it's dangerous. They offer the tale and walk away because the people are going to start to realize it's a story about them. That the people of Israel themselves at this point are so angry, it's justifiable, so angry, upset, so hateful toward their foreign oppressors, oppressors that they cannot imagine grace of God for them and would rather them suffer and burn than have a chance at redemption. It's a fascinating story. It's an unexpected story. And I'm guessing that you may not have a story quite that dramatic, uh, but you may have some unexpected stories in your life. And I think they could be really cool to hear. And some of them could be be funny. Uh, If you have a funny story, uh, I think Sandy Cardin has ten funny stories right now. i right, ready to go. So, <laughs> if you know Sandy, you know I'm right. So, <laughs> so if 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 all we have is Sandy up here talking, it's going to be good. Okay, <laughs> but I bet uh, I bet others of you have unexpected stories. And so, what happens? Uh, and I just want to encourage you to be thinking about that. And if you want to share one of those, it could be this really cool community building thing. We have no expectations other than we're going to hear some good stories and I think you're going to be happy you came. So that's next Sunday. Uh, and then after that, like Dar mentioned, uh, starting a whole month-long series on prayer, but with a different cosmology, a different framework. Uh, classic Christianity, uh, still prays to God, our Heavenly Father, up there somewhere as an all-powerful God who can do absolutely anything. and We just need to pray hard enough to God and God's going to do whatever we ask. going to be our genie in a bottle. Uh, is going to be that one, the great wishmaker, Santa Claus in the sky, on the throne, whatever. And what if that's not the way we think about the world anymore? What if that's not how cosmology is anymore? It was, certainly for the first century, but not so much today. So that's coming up. Uh, we have a book uh, to help you along with that. It's actually a devotional book where you read a thing every day, and it helps you think these things through. Uh, written by a pastor academic. Uh, So I think it will be helpful. Uh, I'll interview him in the next two weeks. So you'll get to hear his voice in your head when you read his work Uh, and it'll be, uh, it'll be really good. So, and I got another special treat coming up, but we'll save that uh, for, for next week, perhaps, or the week after that. Okay. Deep breath. All right. What I love about doing the meditations here, and I'm so grateful for Dave and the others who lead us in this, Uh, We live very noisy lives, and if we don't take a moment to just be still, I think we have a great uh, propensity to miss what the Spirit of God may be trying to say to us. That's why we incorporate it. First of all, it's just good for you. (laughs) I'm a firm believer in meditative and contemplative practice, and I incorporate it into my life. It's just good for your health. It's good for your stress level, but it also opens you up to have greater receptivity to what God may be saying. And so I hope you're in that uh, space right now. So uh, I bought this shirt uh, last January. And I knew we were going to have a luau today. And I knew the luau was canceled, but I decided to wear it anyway. It's a Hawaiian shirt that I bought in Lahaina. And we enjoyed going to downtown Lahaina uh, several times while we were there. I ate at the Paella Fish Market, which is an incredible fish market uh, that's actually reasonable. And for a guy who grew up enjoying all-you-can-eat buffets, taking that as a challenge, (laughs) Uh, uh, I was pleased, and so were uh, my family members, to look at these great portions of delicious food, uh, fresh fish. It was fantastic. I think we ate there three times uh, while we were there, and fairly reasonable as well. And walking down uh, the street and picking up little trinkets for friends and family and all this stuff, our hearts broke uh, when we heard about these fires. And I am certain that as these thousands of displaced people are just still in shock about what happened, I'm sure there are some uh, that are wondering, how could this be And some who are faithful people, or God-believing people anyway, are wondering, where was God? If God is loving, if God is caring, if God is able, if God is this all-powerful being that we've thought that God was, how could this happen? We're learning that potentially uh, a large percentage of the people who have died in this tragedy or children and seniors. Children who were left at home that day uh, because school was off and their grandparents who were watching. Tragedy. How do, we, how do we make sense of stuff like that? And you have your own personal stories. If God is all-powerful, If God is omnipotent, as our classic theology has informed us, how do we make sense of such great needless suffering? So my question today is, in light of the book of Jonah, what do we read into Jonah's story that tells us some things about God that may be true, but then also recognize that some things that we're reading about God in the book of Jonah are what the authors of Jonah thought about God. you know what I mean about the difference between those two things? We have our ideas about God, about how the world works. And a hundred and a thousand years from now, when people look back at our ideas, if we have them written down somewhere, they're going to look at the ideas of Peter Shaw, and they're going to think, well, he got about 1% right. (laughs) And the other things they're going to look at and say, well, I guess that explains a lot about his context and the shaping forces in his world. Same is true with the Bible itself. We are seeing some things about a collective story about God, for sure. And it's a beautiful story, and and taken as a whole especially, we start to see things uh, that, that really give us confidence that God's core nature is grace and love. We see that all throughout, from Genesis all the way to Revelation, but strewn in there with it we also see the ancient cultural worldview of God as this powerful agent of judgment as well who's going to bring it down when the time is right and we better make sure we're ready and we better tell the world they better be ready just like Jonah did to the Ninevites. So I want you to be in tension with me, if you're not already, on what's happening as we see this story because this story is mixed. The Bible doesn't give you straight, clean answers on this stuff, and neither does the story of Jonah. On the one hand, you've got uh, God uh, who is able to bring about a wind. And Interesting, this is a nerd note for you, but there are two words for God that are used uh, in uh, the story of Jonah, Elohim and Yahweh. Anytime that we see something that is uh, kind of on the punitive side or more general side of things, uh, the author uses the name Elohim. And your English Bible is just going to say God or the Lord, but it's Elohim. And then anytime there's a redemptive thing that's going to happen, uh, the author uh, uses uh, the word Yahweh as if to help us understand that there are two different ways to think about God helped us understand that there's this personal redemptive side uh, that's in contrast to this other. That's just Extra points to impress your nerdy friends uh, later on today. But it's interesting because we have this God who tells Jonah what to do. Jonah has the freedom to say no. So God is not in control of Jonah. Jonah hops a boat to go to Spain, Tarshish, and on his way, God whips up a storm to try to Wake Jonah up. So, God has the capacity in the book of Jonah to command the weather to do whatever God wants to do instantly. And I say instantly because, as the story goes, as soon as the guys, the sailors, threw Jonah overboard, the wind stopped. So, apparently, Jonah's cosmology, God has the power to start winds and to stop them at God's will. Uh, Bummer, however, uh, that God's character and love for all people didn't show up for those sailors just yet. Now, they saved their own lives by ditching uh, Jonah overboard, but they also all lost their future income. Uh, The sailors of Tarshish were known for long sea voyages, largely carrying precious metal. If You go back and do the research. They were these long uh, voyage vessels—that's that's that's even one of the definitions of Tarshish that academics pick around. It's not a place. It's it's more of a reality, a thing uh, that refers to the sailors and these merchants that would go. Well, they just lost their whole cargo, their whole load, <laughs> so they are going to be out and and broke and worse. They're washed up. Well, where was God's grace for them? Why did these poor innocent people have to suffer such economic loss because one man? chose to be stubborn, and he didn't stop being stubborn. Jonah gets into the sea. What does God do? Apparently, God is like Dr. Doolittle and can talk to whales and told told the whale, this is where I want you to go, and the whale decided to do it. So God has the capacity to control nature in Jonah's story, and now he has the capacity to, in some way, to influence or maybe even control. It sure looks like control. Uh, this whale to come up and swallow Jonah and eventually even more uh, capacity to get him to vomit on dry land. Two miracles all at once. Vomit on cue (laughs) and just exactly where God wanted Jonah to be spit up. The story goes on. Now we have Jonah being sort of faithful, goes to Nineveh, tells a terrible, terrible, terrible uh, sermon, which God's probably not happy about. And now God spares the people. So we see an evidence of the graciousness of God there. But then at the tail end, we see God messing with a plant that somehow grows up overnight enough to shade Jonah and then killing the plant the very next day. What do we think about God with this? Now, just out of curiosity, how many of you uh, grew up with some semblance of the classic understanding of God as all-powerful, as omnipotent? Yeah, even if you weren't uh, raised in a Christian household, this is the prevailing view of God. Uh, Omniscient—that's uh, a means all-knowing. Omnipotent, meaning all-powerful. Omnipresent, meaning God is everywhere. And therefore, when we have prayed before, I'm guessing that when you really, really wanted a good outcome to happen, if it was because of based on bad news, somebody you loved was in the hospital, or you're about to lose your job, or there's a death, or maybe on positive things. You just bought the lottery ticket, and you're really hopeful. Uh, When you're praying, you are calling out to that all-powerful God to do something. Isn't that right? Because the classic Christianity or Christian theology that uh, that you have sort of... I don't know, woken up into, been born into, because it's the culture in which we're in, has told you that's the way it works. But what if I were to tell you that the ancient Jewish people did not even have that word in their quiver? That the idea of an omnipotent being who literally is all-powerful, or, as the Bible might say, almighty, what if I were to tell you that, that that rendering of that word that we're very familiar with did not exist in their lexicon? That could be a little bit disturbing. And if you're a Bible nerd, you might open the book of Genesis right now and look up any instance where the phrase for God, El Shaddai, shows up. And you've seen it because you've highlighted it in multiple colors, because that's just how nerdy you are. (laughs) And you'll look down at the footnotes and, and you'll see El Shaddai. And you look back up to the English translation and it is translated Almighty God. And so you're thinking about this and you're looking at this clown up on stage and you're like, Pete, anybody who just opens up their Bible can look at this and say, it's El Shaddai. And right there in Genesis, the first book in the Bible, the beginnings, it's translated as Almighty God. Pastor Pete, you should read your Bible more. Unfortunately, that rendering of that Hebrew name, El Shaddai, uh, that rendering of Almighty comes from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew language, which came many 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 years later and they had an option in terms of how they were going to understand this word el shaddai because in hebrew el shaddai does not mean almighty does not mean omnipotent el shaddai literally means the breasted one let's just say that together el shaddai means The breasted one. I'm not making that up. The picture that we have of God uh, in this scene, uh, whenever El Shaddai shows up, is not warlord on a throne. It's not Thanos who's just waiting for all the rings to get on so he can snap his fingers and do whatever needs to be done to save whatever planet, including the earth, from certain destruction. But the picture we have is nurturing, (laughs) mothering, Creative, graceful. Now, I know we have some mothers here today. And we got into some good arguments in my class, uh, The Heart of Christianity, uh, last spring on this about the nature of love and the strength of El Shaddai. Have any of you ever known a strong mother before? Is a mother's love strong or weak? It's fierce. So we're not talking about wimpiness here when we're talking about the breasted one. We're talking about uh, a being here who is experienced by the Hebrew people as somebody that is incredibly powerful, but also incredibly nourishing and nurturing and giving and caring. What a different way to enter the world with that kind of being. Now, Tom Ord, uh, who's a friend and friend of our church, Uh, He wrote a book, in fact, it is his most recent book, called The Death of Omnipotence and The Birth of Amnipotence. And in this book, if you really want to nerd out on it, he spends the first half of the book talking about how that word omnipotence, the way we understand it, does not come from a Hebrew place, it comes from a Greek place our way of thinking about the strength of God being able to do absolutely anything God wants to do is not Hebrew, it is not original to our faith, but has somehow been overlaid over time. And he makes the biblical, theological, and philosophical case for it. I have a copy of the book if you'd like to check it out. Or just go buy it for 10 bucks, It's a great book. Instead, Tom Ward offers what He's been calling omnipotence, which is a love-centered, an uncontrolling, loving power of God. Where the greatest chief characteristic, the primary characteristic of God is not power, but love. And love by its nature is very powerful. I maintain it's the most powerful force in all of creation even as it continues to create. But one truth about love is that love at its depth is uncontrolling. It does not tell us what to do. It does not control every variable because if it does, it's not love. You with me? So when it comes to things like this, and we're seeing a very complex issue here, we need to not ask just the question, well, what does Jonah tell us about God? And therefore, what's our take home? As if we're supposed to transport ourselves back to somewhere between 400 years before Jesus was born up to about 800 years before Jesus was born, which was the time period in which this story was crafted and disseminated. That's the time frame. We're not even sure what it was, a 400-year window. It would be silly for us in any other frame to go back and just simply uh, take wholesale uh, what Jonah has to say from his perspective and his cosmology. Are there truths to what he has to say? Yeah, we're gleaning that every week. But think about any frame of science. Let's say you're going in for a procedure. Uh, you're, uh, you're having headaches, or you're ill, and you can't seem to shake this thing. or You're having a joint that's out of place, or broken bone, or something else going on in you and you have the choice to go to uh, your medical provider here and now or you could take a time machine to 400 bc to 800 bc and let them take a shot at it which way you going to go you're probably going to stick with today because we see things and know things differently our collective experience has helped us create a broader worldview and understanding. This takes nothing away from the importance of looking at Scripture, it takes nothing away from the strength of the Bible, it actually strengthens the Bible because we're ab- we can look at it now for what it is and what it's offering us. We are getting a library that spans centuries of time of tradition that collectively tell the story from all sorts of authors, from leaders and kings, to farmers, to dirt poor people, to people who are rich, to people who are poor from all over that ancient region from different perspectives coming together to offer part of their story in this collection. And we see their fingerprints and their ideologies all over the place. But we also see this golden thread that runs through the whole story about a being who is creative and loving and with us. So... When we think about things like Lahaina and we think about the reason we have a pleasant morning today instead of 82 degrees and hot, here we are enjoying a cool morning while our friends and relatives in Southern California are holding on to their hats and people in Mexico are beginning to wonder, are they going to make it through this? How we think about these things matters to us. How we think about God and our relationship matters to how our being is and how we enter the world and how we do faith. Because it's hard to keep up prayer and faith if it really ends up being a slot machine. God, I'm praying for this good outcome. The winds didn't stop. God, I'm praying for this cancer to go away. We won this season. God, I'm praying for the Giants offense to come back. (laughs) What do we do with this? What do you do with this? I'm not giving you the answer today, but I I am going to tell you this, that in terms of my own prayer, and this is part of what our our series starting in September, which is going to last a couple of months, because the book takes us through seven weeks seven weeks of readings to think stuff through to try things on for uh for to see if it fits Um, i'll tell you how i view things now and that is that i don't think god is up there anywhere i think god is here everywhere in here in you in me it's all we are in god panentheism means that everything is in god god is that pervasive presence that that energy that loving force that ties us all together that is the, the source, the genesis of all creation, that is is our life breath, is that thing that holds us together. But I also believe that that presence of God is uncontrolling, even as it's with us. And it means that when we see terrible things happen like Lahaina and things we've experienced right here, we know that we can't ask God to, to control that because it doesn't happen. But what we can ask God to do is to be incredibly present for those who are in that moment in even more profound ways, trusting that we have some kind of connection if we really are all connected, and that somehow the way that we pray impacts not just our own lives and our own receptivity, but has an effect toward this greater good. And we don't understand how. But this also is part of the biblical witness. Jesus' brother James says, the prayer of the righteous is powerful and effective. He doesn't say how. He doesn't say that he understands it. He just says because of his own experience. We've seen things happen. The majority of the time, by the way, when I pray in this kind of a framework, thinking about who God is and what my influence might be on on how God is working in the world and my person and what God is doing in me, most of the time, the greatest influence that I can perceive is right here. It's in me. It's in me choosing to be connected to the very flow and the energy and the love of God that I might be more sensitive to what's happening. And you know what I find out is that when I, and I think this is, I think you can agree with me on this, if you know what I'm talking about, and I'm sure I'm sure every one of you have had a moment like this, where you're in the zone with God. You're in the flow of the Spirit. And all of a sudden, because you've quieted the noise down from outside, you're more receptive to what the Spirit is nudging you, whispering you to do. All of a sudden, you start to see things around you that you may not have been able to see before. You start to sense a nudge. You start to hear a voice that you may not have before. And it's almost like you're in a magical world for a moment because you're not the only one in the flow. I've seen this happen in remarkable ways where people are in the zone and find themselves in the company of other people in the zone and all of a sudden doors start to open up that otherwise would have remained locked. Things start to happen in terms of possibilities and potentialities and amazing redemptive things happen because a whole collective people were in the flow and they weren't necessarily Christian when they were doing it. That's remarkable and powerful. Who knows what happens when a community our size, when a community of a city, of a nation, of a world, prays toward one redemptive path? What happens in everybody's minds when we pray that the shalom of God, the goodness of God, the love of God, permeates everything and everyone, starting with ourselves? How does that change the way we think about everyone, including the people we can't stand? what happens in the energy of the world and the flow of the Spirit in the world when that is our number one goal. Even if it's a fleeting moment, for that one moment, shalom is the target. And in that one moment, beautiful things happen. It may only last a moment, but the moment matters. And the moment may be long enough to spare a life to quell some hatred, to open some eyes to make a shift that makes way for the next season in our lives. So, not giving you a lot of answers today, because I mainly just want you to ask questions about what kind of God do you believe in? Now, if you want to keep the classic Christian Santa Claus view of God, you're welcome to do that. Now, I grew up in a uh, middle class uh, home. <laughs> And 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 my parents were cheap, <laughs> which means uh, our gifts were on the lighter side at Christmas. So my wife and I talk about this because her parents were in about the same exact boat, and uh, both tight with their money, which is a good thing to do. So when it came time for us to write our letters to Santa Claus for for our gifts, uh, we knew that Santa Claus was on a was on a budget every year. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, given our age and stage and all that, you got to take take inflation into account. But we knew that probably if we asked for anything more than 20 bucks from Santa Claus, wasn't going to happen. But we were pretty sure something was going to happen. Right. And so uh, I wonder if that's your classic Christianity view of a Santa Claus like that, knowing that there's a toy catalog full of all kinds of stuff that you'd want, hundreds of things, perhaps. But, you know, that you should probably lower your expectation to one out of a hundred of those things that's not that great. If you want to keep that classic view, that's fine. And I'll tell you why it's fine. It's limiting for the reasons I've talked about today, but the fineness of it, or if you want to keep praying in the way you've always prayed coming up in this series where you're, you're addressing a very male heavenly father up there with a long white beard on a throne somewhere, because there's biblical paradigms for that. If you're cool with that, that's fine. You know why? Because your heart, your mouth and your mind might be praying one thing, but your heart is a different thing. And God sees your heart, cares about your heart and the spirit behind the prayer, and your well-being and your desperation for shalom much more than what's coming across your lips. Thank God. Thank God. God does more through me than what comes out of this mouth. (laughs) Because the, I can't tell you how many times that's been the case anyway. Where some of you have come up to me and says, wow, that really spoke to me today. And you start to tell me what, you, what spoke to you today, and I'm like, I didn't say that. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? So even if you choose to embrace a classic Christianity, a classic view of that kind of a God up there, that's fine. Keep praying. Keep doing it as you're doing it, because if that is fostering your relationship with God God's going to work with whatever you give. God worked with Jonah with whatever Jonah gave God. He's heading to Tarshish. God's like, I guess I'm going to Tarshish too. He's thrown overboard. I guess I'm going for a swim too. (laughs) He's going to Nineveh. He's going to deliver a terrible sermon. Well, I guess I got to work with what I've got because that's all God has to work with. Now let's switch gears. So if this is messing with your paradigm of who God is and how do we pray and what's that even do, then I want to ask you if we are a Christian church, which we are, and we're a Jesus-following church, uh, which is what we strive to be, and Jesus' whole thing was to follow his Abba, his daddy, which was, a, which was more of a breasted one vision of God, right? Right? more of a loving being presence rather than stern father on a throne somewhere that was grumpy as soon as he got home for work kind of a thing. Now, this is a loving dad. That's, that's Jesus' primary image, which I think radically shaped his life. I want to ask you, if, if we see that picture of God and we are trying to follow Jesus, who is trying to follow in the footsteps and nudge and the flow of the spirit of daddy, if we're essentially then, cut out the middleman, trying to follow in the flow and the likeness of God and we recognize that God is primarily loving and uncontrolling, then we as the followers of God, what should we look like? And what shouldn't we look like? For our primary view of God, and this I think we can safely say is held by many people of Christian persuasion in our country, if our primary view of God is judge who's coming in wrath to kick their butt, not ours, because we're saved, of course, but their butts, how is that model of God going to translate into the everyday life of that believer? Catching my drift? If our view is that God is essentially, pardon me, a judgmental jerk, I think it's not going to be too far down the, down the line when we become judgmental jerks ourselves. Which is not the same as calling out uh, things that are incongruent with shalom. That's not the same thing. But I mean the kind of vitriol that we see uh, in the name of Jesus that show up in ugly, ugly venues all the time. That's not who we are if God is the breasted one, the nurturing one, the loving one, fiercely strong, but devoted, creating nonetheless, if God really is daddy, always with us, always loving, then we should look like that. And I'll go one step further. We get to look like that. We get to with confidence be lovely, to issue love wherever we go. We get to do that. In a world, (laughs) I don't know if you know, but politics is a thing in America. In a world of politics where there's plenty of hatred being slapped around everywhere, we get to be a different voice. And say, it's just coming from what we're we're seeing our mother do. It's just coming from what we're seeing Daddy do. It's just coming from what we're seeing Jesus do. And we get to do it. Which, by the way, happens to mean more shalom in your life happens to mean more shalom is spread around wherever you go, which also happens to be a very meaningful thing to do with your life and actually makes the world a better place. What a vision. What a gift that we have. So you got to mess with who you think God is, how that messes with your prayer. And secondly, if you claim to be a person of faith, just exactly what kind of God are you trying to emulate? Which God do you get to be like? I want to pray for a moment, and then we will close with an adaptation of the Lord's Prayer. It looks like that. Let's uh, have a moment of quiet, Bill, before we get to that. If you want to close your eyes or soft gaze, that would be wise. So, Spirit of God, you are flowing right here, right now. You are in the house or more specifically, in the courtyard. You're nudging. You're whispering. You're loving us forward. You're not controlling us in any particular way. You are inviting us. You are wooing us into something better, more more whole, more mature. What a wonderful nurturer you are. What a wonderful mother you have been for us. When we beat ourselves up, when others beat us up, you are there. The wonderful mommy and daddy that you are to hold us, to comfort us, to be with us, to stay with us, clean us up, to help us on our way until we do it again. You're there to applaud us when we get it right, to celebrate when we get it right. You are there to hold us accountable when we blow it, to remind us that there are consequences. That's part of you too. But all with love. So I pray that this will affect how we, how we view you, and how we pray for the things that are on our hearts, things that we deeply care about. So we pray for the people of Lahaina. We pray for the people who are so in shock, and their grief and their agony, they're not knowing what to do. They're sleeping on cots and gyms. They don't know what's going to be next. They don't know how they're going to make it our hearts break for them and with them. We pray that your spirit give them comfort and strength. We pray that they'll have clarity of mind when they need to, to know what the next steps are. We pray for everybody involved in helping on site, from government agencies to nonprofits, that there will be a collective surge of loving help and we pray for comfort and a grief that we, that most of us cannot imagine. And we pray that we will be sensitive to those who are suffering around us. I pray that we will be generous with who we are and our love and our resources for Lahaina, but also for those people right here around us who are struggling and suffering may we be known as a people of compassion and love because you are a God of compassion and love. God, we want to be more like you. If you are our breath, if you are our core identity, if you are that that eternal piece of our DNA mixed with the DNA that we have inherited from our parents here on this earth. Help us drill down and mature into all that You've enabled us to be. And maybe someday, increasingly throughout our lives, people people will experience somehow Your love flowing through us simply because we've chosen to walk closely with You. And to that end, we open our eyes and pray the prayer, that or a rendition of the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Our loving, supportive, holy Abba, who are here and everywhere, may your divine commonwealth come. May your will be done through us. We are grateful for the gift of food and work for all to eat their fill. May we work for a world where mutual grace and respect abound where well-being and deep peace thrive.